I'm Martin Reeves, Chairman of the BSG Henderson Institute, which is BSG's think tank for exploring new ideas in business. Welcome to our Thinkers and Ideas podcast, where we explore some of those new ideas with leading management thinkers. Today's edition is a little special because we're going to debate a single central idea in strategy, competitive advantage. When we're going to ask one question, which I think is a rather central and, and controversial question right now, which is how durable is competitive advantage? So I was brought up believing in the mantra of sustainable competitive advantage, the idea that it was necessary, hard, but possible, and that that was the basis of, of competitive strategy. Now, increasingly, we hear a different argument in the world, an argument to do with disruption and temporary advantage. Some people have called it serial temporary advantage. So there's the idea that this sustainable competitive advantage that we seek may no longer be available. And one of our guests, we'll get into this in a second, but has even said that this view is wrong, exaggerated, and even positively harmful. Whereas another of our guests has said, well, it, it may be even more true than you think. So let me introduce my guests, two of the most respected voices in strategy and the most respected management thinkers today. First, Rita McGrath. Welcome, Rita. Oh, pleasure to be here, Martin. She's a professor at Columbia Business School. She is, leads thinking on innovation and growth in uncertain times consistently a Thinkers 50, top management thinker, best-selling author of multiple books relevant to this topic. I think The End of Competitive Advantage, couldn't have a better title that fits with this debate, and Seeing Around Corners, which is which is related, of course. We're also joined by Roger Martin. Hello, Roger. Hey, Martin. Great to be here. Also needs no introduction, but let me do it anyway. He's a professor emeritus at uh, the Rotman School, the University of Toronto, where he served as dean for a long period of time, like Rita, he's always on the Thinkers 50 list, a top management thinker, best-selling author, more books than I, I can count, but most recently, Playing to Win and A New Way to Think. Roger has recently stated that actually competitive advantage has never been more entrenched, never been more concentrated. It's almost the opposite view to the end, end of competitive advantage. So there we have it. There we have the two sides of the argument. So let's explore this a, a little bit. Maybe retry if I can invite you to give a, a concise statement of, of your view of the lack of durability of competitive advantage and why you think that's an important point of view. Sure. So when the original theory of sustainable advantage was developed, I would argue the world was quite a different place in terms of what was possible. So the recipe, if I could mention a recipe, was you found an attractive position in an attractive industry. And you threw up entry barriers like crazy, and then you defended that advantage for a long period of time. And there were many companies that followed that quite successfully. So why I think that it's a bit more nuanced now is we've certainly seen the reduction of traditional entry barriers. So if I take you back to 1990 and I say, I want you to make me a movie that's going to be seen by 100 million people, a video. You know, back then you would have had to hire burly guys with cameras on their shoulders and use physical film and snip it physically to get it cut to the right shape and put it into canisters and physically mail it around the world. I mean, that would be a multi-million dollar proposition to do this. Today, like two kids in a garage with not even a very good smartphone can kind of do the same activity for free, right? So I think there's a, a story about entry barriers. I do think there's a story about greater globalization. One of the phenomena I think is also extremely interesting is how industry boundaries are getting very blurry. 
to the point where I think we need to have a think about what a competitive advantage actually is. And it's interesting, uh, Dick Rumelt was asked to define this before an antitrust commission some years ago and spectacularly said he didn't even know how to describe it. So it was very interesting. So I'll give you my definition of, of what are the components of a competitive advantage, which is it has to be something that a market appreciates and will pay for. It has to be something that your company is behind and will support. And it has to be something that gives you some degree of competitive insulation. And I think those have all become very dynamic. And if somebody said, prove it to me, what, what sort of facts or data would you point towards to say that in aggregate, the durability of that advantage has, has decreased markedly? Well, I think if you look at the lead tables, you know, if, if, if you look at like the largest companies by revenue or employment or whatever, what you see is a couple of patterns. The leaders 20 or 25 or 30 years ago are not the leaders today by whatever metric you choose. Secondly, is a really interesting bit of new research looking at the dematerialization of the class of assets that companies advertise that give them value. And what you're seeing is a steady march of intangible assets as opposed to tangible assets. And so that's a real shift in what it is we are using as our competitive tools. So how would you counter all of that? Roger, you've, in some recent blog pieces, you've been quite vociferous to say that, you know, this, this view that we've just heard is, you know, a little bit exaggerated and, and, and possibly damaging if we take it too far. What would be your position and, and the main sort of evidence you'd offer for that? Sure. Well, I think a competitive advantage is arguably more important than it's ever been in the modern economy. I think the couple of things that have changed at least from my perspective, are you know, one, and I wrote about this, as you know, in my second last book, One More Is Not Better, that much of the economy is going from sort of distributed in some kind of Gaussian way, normal way to Pareto ways, and that applies to business as well. And so being kind of average, okay, not seeking competitive rent, literally just saying, you know, because you can't get it anymore, so you don't, you don't seek it, is, I think, way more dangerous than it would have been 20 or 30 years ago. The other thing about business, I think, that's fundamentally changed that makes it so important to seek competitive advantages. The fixed cost, variable cost component of most business has really shifted, right? So that there are many more fixed costs and fewer variable costs. And in an industry in which variable costs predominate, you tend to end up with a more fragmented industry where lots of folks can compete and survive. And this is the case in healthcare and education, for example. You just, you've got to outlay costs to serve an additional customer. In software, the marginal cost is probably the commission you pay your salesperson, and that's about it because the cost of producing another unit is zero. So as fixed costs have risen as a percentage of the cost structure of companies, if you don't get out to a lead. And if you can't invest more behind your advantage than the next company, you will lose, you will be crushed. And so you have to invest aggressively behind the competitive position that you're trying to seek. So we are in a world now where any hesitation about seeking advantage, making the bets necessary to seek advantage is extremely dangerous to your health. You know, I, I know it's a, it's a fascinating world. I, I always worry about how much people characterize the world now as so different than the world before, blah, blah, blah. You know, I get told it's a VUCA world all the time, and it didn't used to be VUCA. Last time I checked, it's always been VUCA. But 
if you just look at how many companies have such long-term advantages, super long-term, like companies that I've, I've involved with, like I was on the board of Thompson for a while, its best businesses is Westlaw. Their competitive advantage is 100 years old and going super strong, right? It's probably never been stronger. And that's because the West family way back 100 years ago decided to figure out how to write headnotes for every case that came out of the U.S. legal system, create a key numbering system so that you could sort through them, and then create a huge business selling law books, right? Case books so that filled the law libraries of, of everybody. And then teaching uh, students at law schools how to utilize it. Did they sit on their advantage? No. You know, when this thing called the internet came along, right? The law books slowly but surely disappeared completely, and now they sell 100% of their revenues is for online services. So you can't just sit there. This idea that somehow that you could just sit there and harvest some kind of advantage is just, just never happened. But it's 100 years and, and going and no diminution whatsoever. So I find it hard to subscribe to some kind of notion that 75 years, if you look at the tech companies and ask the question, you know, sort of like the big tech companies, if they have short-term advantages, no, they've got long, long-term, we're more worried about monopolization, entrenchment of advantage than we have in, in over 100 years. But anyway. So let me see if I can capture with some subtlety the, the apparent opposition of views here, and then let's see if we can maybe tease a reconciliation out. So I hear, I hear Rita saying, and correct me if I get this wrong, Rita, I hear you saying that we're living in a world where because of the digital tools and technologies we have and other reasons, barriers to entry are lower, you know, therefore there's more competition. That competition cuts across industries. So the sort of positional, the durable position advantage we used to have is, is harder to sustain. And Roger, I hear you saying, yes, we need to continue to work at, at, at competitive advantage. And I think you said in some ways that fight for advantage is even more intense in the, in the modern environment. But I heard you go a step further and say, you know, with this sort of greater weight of fixed costs and this lower weight of variable costs in digital businesses nowadays, if you are successful in, in achieving that advantage, it's actually more monopolistic, potentially more durable. It doesn't come automatically. You have to fight for it, but it is durable. And you've given examples of how overemphasizing the volatility and, and the VUCA nature of the world and so on may mislead us as to the possibility of obtaining durable advantage. Did, did I capture the... Yes the tension fairly. Well, there is one nuance that I would add, which is the fact that I think you have to be on the alert for a change in what gave you competitive advantage in the past is not an advocation of doing nothing. I mean, that that basically says you need to be on your toes, right? You need to be moving as markets move. And, and you know, for every Westlaw, there's a Rand McNally, <laughs> you know? Um, and the guy who ran Rand McNally was quoted in 2000, I want to say 2006, is basically saying, you know, Paper maps are going to be no less useful to people in the future than, you know, their people are still going to want to open up a paper map the same way they want to open up their morning news and, and read it with a cup of coffee. So I think I think there's not a recommendation that we hang out and don't do anything. The recommendation is that we are alert to the fact that, you know, around the edges of our organizations, things can change that can be very undermining. One th other thing I would add, and, and here I have, am in vehement agreement with Roger, the fact that so many I'll use the direct consumer category of company as an example. 
Entry barriers are low, dead easy to get in. Casper is, I've got it, mattress in a box. This is going to be awesome. You know, and by the time they tried to go IPO, there were something like 206 mattress in a box companies. And what that means to me is strategy 101 still works, right? <laughs> like you have to have entry barriers. You have to have some kind of protection from competition or you're just not going to be able to establish that beachhead. I would just be careful about suggesting, though, that entry barriers in general are, are falling. We have this relatively new category of network effects, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, right? So there have always been some network effects. So Tide has the network effect of if other people buy Tide, your supermarket will always cover it. But power of the network effects now are, are so huge. It's a new kind of barrier. So I agree that the kind of barriers change over time. For what it's worth, I'm not, I'm not a big f- fan of barriers to entry as, in fact, any kind of concept. I don't use it. I, I don't like it. I don't so much concern myself with entry as what advantage have I built? Have I built this advantage that is cumulative? It doesn't mean that people can't get in the business and compete. And in fact, I think one of the things that I, I do not like what some of the tech companies do, which is having kill zones around them where they try to make sure they, they destroy everyone. I think durability of advantage derives in part from having awesome competitors where you've got to keep working really hard to keep on building different kinds of advantages and adding to your, your advantage rather than sort of saying, I can have this thing that I erect these things called barriers to entry around. I just saw, I don't believe in that. I hear you in violence agreements on that point. Now, I hear you saying that you need to work harder for the competitive advantage than ever before, but you do come out in a different place in terms of the aggregate durability of, of advantage. And you're both extremely knowledgeable and experienced people and spend your lives thinking about strategy. So I'm wondering, how is it possible that, that you look at the elephant and see you know, very different parts of it here? What's the, the reconciliation? So maybe we can take it in stages. It's quite an unusual phenomenon, I think, for two world experts on strategy to look at the same facts. I know that you work with a variety of companies, so it's not that you've got a very narrow view of things. And you come out in very different places. Like, how could that happen? Yeah, I don't know. And, and you're right. I work with all sorts of companies, little ones, big ones, lots of tech companies. 40% of my clients are tech companies. So I don't know. I am somewhat uh, flummoxed as to why in a world where I see the leading companies in the world having these advantages that are brutally hard to overcome if they're not kind of lazy and stupid. So there's never been an antidote for stupid strategy. So like you can give me lots of examples of companies that don't have durable advantage that never did, right? If I can shrink a mattress and put it in a box to get rid of costs, I mean, and this is what I teach in strategy, unless your capability set that's associated with your where to play, how to win decision is different and your competitor can't, won't be able to replicate that, then you don't actually have a strategy that's worth the paper it's written on. So I I think crummy strategies are being toasted faster than they've, they've ever have. Let me pick up on that as maybe one possible reconciliation and maybe put that to Rita. So I guess that you're not necessarily contradicting each other if we're talking about different companies here. So I guess one possible reconciliation is that it's a harsher world competitively for many of the reasons that you've given Rita. And so in aggregate, advantage is not durable. 
But the companies that are winning with these high fixed cost network businesses, they're not automatically guaranteed to have a durable advantage, but if they fight for it in the right way, they can have it. So it can be true that the, the companies that get it right are getting it more right than ever. And the companies that don't perhaps face a harsher world. And if we look at the aggregate, because Roger, I noticed that your evidence is, is really based, if I correct me if I'm wrong, on the durability of the strongest companies in the land, the, the biggest and the strongest companies in the land. Whereas, Rita, you seem to me more saying something about the nature of competition in aggregate. In other words, the idea that we're talking about different companies here, you know, weak companies or average companies versus the strongest companies, does that reconcile the position a little bit, Rita? I think that is a perspective. I think we may be looking at different, different sort of phases in the evolution of a company. So I'll introduce a couple of theories here that, that I think might be relevant. So the first one is the original dynamic capability theory of growth, as articulated originally by Edith Penrose, right, who studied how firms grow. And what she discovered back, back in the day was that the firms she studied had entrepreneurial-minded managers who had the motivation to grow their companies. They funded these companies out of retained earnings, and they probed their environment for places where the company's capabilities might be relevant. And these were unique. They were, as Roger would talk about, distinctive capabilities because these managers had that like deep embedded knowledge about the companies and the secret sauce. And so that was how firms grew back in the day. And her recipe was basically that that extension of capabilities into new areas is what gives you the ability to sustain your advantage once you've discovered one. And I think that's a really important point. What I think we've seen since then is a real shift in that mantra. And Penrose herself, before she passed away, wrote in a footnote to her second edition of her book, which is called The Theory of the Growth of the Firm, that once you remove that retained earnings, virtuous cycle, you're rewarding shareholders more than stakeholders, once you take that out of the equation, now you're in a situation where many more companies are going to be more rushed for time in a more fragile situation not able to build that kind of dynamic capability beast uniqueness, right? And I think that's part of what comes into my argument. The other piece of theory that I look at a lot is Carlotta Perez's work on long-term economic cycles and sort of boom and bust cycles in capitalism. And the part I think is very interesting is she talks about, you know, some new vector of opportunity opens up that attracts investment capital. And so you have booms. Eventually, the boom sorts itself out, the losers lose, the winners win big, but it's built the infrastructure for the next phase upon which the next set of capitalist systems are built. So if you look at it in these 50 to 70 year cycles, right, it's pretty clear that whoever won in canals is not going to win in railroads. You know, whoever won in railroads is not going to win in automobiles. Whoever won in automobiles is, and you get the idea. So I think when you look at it through a longer lens like that, it's just a different perspective on what companies are doing as they try to compete. And then one last thing, and I know, Roger, you're dying to get in here, no. is um, never said never said companies don't have to fight like crazy to sustain their positions. I do think what is different now is the power of network effects. I think antitrust, at least in the United States, has been so defanged, it's virtually not functioning. We have many industries, baby food, banking, you know, a whole bunch where there's just excessive concentration. And I do think there'll be a, a potentially a refusal to continue with that. There's a lot of discontent that we're hearing on the regulatory front for that. So I propose one idea to reconcile these positions, which is maybe talking about different companies. Do you, Roger, do you have a different idea about how we can reconcile these observations? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends what you count, right? So if you wanted to count the number of companies with competitive advantage that's somewhat sustainable versus those that aren't 
I could accept an argument that said there are a greater number of companies now with competitive advantage, like with crappy strategies, right? So if that's what you're counting, I could accept that argument, which says nothing about the end of competitive advantage. But if I, if I were counting the value of competitive advantages and do it in real, in real dollars, so you, you've taken sort of inflation out of it, or you could even index it to, to something and say, is the value of competitive advantage in 2022 lower? Because this thesis would say, well, with competitive advantage going away, the end of competitive advantage, it doesn't exist anymore. You would say, oh, then the value of cumulative competitive advantages in the economy or the S&P 500 or some, you know, some big would be lower than 2012, 2002, 92, et cetera. I would make the argument that the value of competitive advantages that exist in 2022 is as high or higher than in 1982 or whatever, 50 years ago. It is possessed by dramatically fewer companies. And that is because in the modern economy, if your strategy sucks, you're going to get killed. And in 1982, if your strategy sucked, like you were a shitty pharmaceutical company, you'd still make 15% return on equity and just be, just be totally fine. Can't do that anymore. So that would be a reconciliation. If I may share some, some numbers. So I've had a consultant spend a couple of months looking at you know, what does the data say? And it's, it's far from a black or white a conclusion, but I think the, the numbers would be consistent with the sort of synthesis you're, you're suggesting here. In that, So it is the case that the durability of total shareholder return, which is not exactly the same thing as competitive advantage, but nevertheless, you expect competitive advantage to pay off in some way. So look at the durability of total shareholder return, the decay rate, like how fast does advantage where it exists decay, that does appear to have increased. In aggregate, that's all public companies. At the same time, the gap between the winners and losers, the, the top and the bottom quartile of firms, has increased. And it is true that the marginal costs of replication production in digital businesses are close to zero, and digital platforms are very capital intensive. So there may be other ways of sort of reconciling the data here, but I mean, that would be consistent with the idea that in, on average, it's easier to be mediocre or bad but that it's still possible to have durable advantage and the rewards of doing so are higher than ever proportionately because of network effects and the weakness of, of monopoly law and so on. And I guess it makes no statement about the nature of that advantage, which was going to be my next question to you, which is independent of how durable you think it is, is the basis of competitive advantage different now than it was 20 or 30 years ago? So I let me give you a straw man. I mean, my reading of Henderson and Porter was that essentially they were talking about variants of scale advantage. It was all about relative market share, scale, scale economies, learning benefits, which is cumulative scale. Let's call that static advantage. And a lot of people now are talking about dynamic advantage, which is the scale doesn't count for much. You have to renew through capabilities or more dynamically. But you may not agree. I mean, the question is, has the basis of advantage changed? What do you, what do you think, Roger? I would concur. One thing I get, I always get a little antsy about is Mike being characterized with things that like he never, ever said. Like I've worked with him for 15 years, just like you were at mm. work for, with Rusa. And so, uh, so uh, it was never lost. But that having been said, I, I guess I believe that 
the great companies just always, always, always had to keep moving ahead. Now, what moving ahead meant is so idiosyncratic, though there is this common theme, right, which is they moved ahead in figuring out better ways to serve their customers and or adjacent customers. And innovating on that front is what really mattered. Is that not sensitive to scale? No, because innovation in in itself, like branding and innovation are two of the most scale sensitive cost categories, right? And so if you want to buy X number of gross rating points in America, and you have a $10 billion business, it feels like it's cheap. And if you have a billion dollar business, it feels like it's really expensive. If you have a hundred million dollar business, it feels like it's astronomical. So there will always be a scale dimension to it. But many large scale companies who are in the ash bin of history now had huge scale and didn't invest in thinking about what was next for the the customer. That's interesting, Roger. So you're sort of saying this dichotomy of static dynamic in a sense is an oversimplification. The the scale may permit the possibility of advantage, but actually there's always something very dynamic about constantly renewing it, if I hear you correctly. Yes. So the, yeah. maybe the distinction is a little simpler. Story. Yeah, and there are many companies, right? If you get inside a company and watch them work and plan, they, they'll say, well, the market is only growing at X, right? So the most we can grow is X or maybe X plus 1% or something. And those are the losers, in my view. So the, the winners are the ones that say, okay, the market is growing X. Lego, I work, with, I work with Lego. The market is growing at zero. How's about we grow at 20%, right? right? Like that's literally the, the, what they sit around, sit around saying, right? Which, uh, how can we get way more share? How can we bring more consumers into the market? How do we have to innovate the product and the offering to make that happen? That, to me, is an attitude about advantage, right? Which is to say, don't don't let the gross characteristics of the market you're you're in define what you can or cannot accomplish, because you'll eventually die. Like, you just just will, because somebody else will say, yeah, I'm going to invent the next way to, to serve those customers. Anyway, sorry. Over to you, Rita. Rita, yeah, so come back to the, the, the point about the shift in the base of advantage. Um, mm-hmm. Has it shifted, do you think, independent of the, of the durability of that advantage? Well, I think we're seeing new forms of value, for sure. And I do want to come back with a specific example on the, the kind of keep moving ahead theme. So Eric Joachim Stoller has written very famously about interaction fields and the notion that it's the information about things that is increasingly adding value to those things that in sometimes many companies are today almost willing to give away the product just to get access to the information. So I think we're seeing, you know, intangibles, new forms of value creation, which were not really prevalent before. And some people have talked about this in terms of the changing nature of power between buyers and sellers. You know, today, buyers have a lot more power. They have a lot more knowledge. They have, in many cases, more choice. Not in every case. In some cases, they only have one choice. But I think that way of thinking about what constitutes value in in the market has possibly changed. So the the company that I'd like to offer as an example of how some of this plays out is called Build-A-Bear Workshop. You probably know them. If you have young girls in your lives, you've definitely deposited some money in Build-A-Bear Workshop's coffers. And, you know, they were founded with this great idea from by an entrepreneur, Maxine Clark, who said, what if we create this great 
amazing experience for kids who want to actually create these these basically stuffed animals, right? And you participate in creating them, and then you, you dress them up, and you go home, and they have a birth certificate and all this stuff. And she very clearly anchored it on Build a Bear Workshop. And as the company matured, as children had a lot more alternatives, as other things started to change in the environment, the workshop piece of it was really struggling. And so they brought in a larger company CEO to, to kind of complement what Maxine had built, a woman named Sharon Price John, who'd done a lot of brand building across toys, across you know consumer goods and so forth. And her insight with Build-A-Bear was, yes, Build-A-Bear, the brand is awesome, and that could go many places. The workshop part of it, maybe not so much, right? And so what she set the company on was a path towards discovering where that Build-A-Bear value proposition could be valuable. So you can buy you can buy wedding gifts there now. You can get stuff on the internet. Uh, you can, you know, use it for all kinds of different occasions. You can, you can have a doll that looks like you, this thing that looks like you. So my point is that the initial advantage, which was the experience in the store that drew customers in and served them very well, over time became less and less powerful. And the next phase of the company's development had to take it to the next phase of value creation. So that to me is an example of the original advantage, had its moment in the sun. It was really fantastic, exploited it for a long time. Eventually it began to fade and we're moving on to the next advantage. So that that's the sense in which I mean this. Right. And that in a broad sense, you, you appear both to, to agree on that, that the, the renewal of advantage in a very dynamic way is an essential feature of being competitive. Whatever is true, maybe we, we won't completely decode the, the mystery of the recent past and the uh, distant past of competitive advantage, but whatever we conclude doesn't mean it's going to be the same moving forward. So I, I'm very interested in the possibility of the durable elevation of the cost of capital. We're seeing a partial uh, tech revaluation, uh, an assorting of, of tech companies right now, partly because companies that make little money or are never going to make any money at a high discount rate are in a very difficult position. I mean, the cost of capital is in a sense, the, the price of, of innovation. For that reason or any other, do you, do you expect any shift in the, in the nature or practice of competitive advantage moving forwards? What do you think, Roger? Well, I, I think your thesis is, is right. You can't, you can't have one of the key productive assets change relative price dramatically and have nothing change. I think the biggest loser in this whole change is talent, right? Talent has had a period where its its capital is free, 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 and so if you've got an idea, there there was never never a better time because it was basically the the capital necessary to bring it to, into fruition was virtually free, and and of course you know Jeff Bezos you know famously like I I mean I think he had a truly awesome capital markets strategy that was nicely twinned with his business strategy, and he he's gotten to be a enormously wealthy man with an enormously successful company because he twinned the, the two. It's not necessarily the case that somebody would be able to come along and do exactly that in the capital environment you're, you're speaking of. That having been said, I can't say that I look and say, well, then this kind of advantage or that kind of advantage will now come to fore so much as there's going to be a, a rebalancing Talent was grabbing a big, big piece of the pie when capital was, was free. Capital is going to grab a bigger piece of the pie now that it's anything but free. And I think there's a decent chance it'll get still less free. But I think the battles for advantage are, are not necessarily going to change enormously, or at least not, not that I can see. Do you see a, a shift in the basis or the durability of advantage moving forwards, Rita, as you, as you think about the, the various forces we see shaping the future? Well, you and, and uh, your colleagues have written about this, right? 
terrific book I really like, which is Your Strategy Needs a Strategy. <laughs> and, and I think, um, you know, we have to look at the environment in which these strategies are being conceived and executed. I think less friction, greater velocity. I think that is something we are seeing. I do think we're seeing an organizational response. And I think that's an interesting thing to think about from a strategic point of view, which is if you imagine architecting an organization where you actually can push as much decision making as possible close to the level of whatever the presenting issue is, you know, sort of a lot of fanfare about delayering and restructuring and you know, that kind of thing. It allows the organization to kind of discover competitive advantages at multiple levels. So you sort of got a mini advantage, you know, sort of in the little operating unit that you're in. And then that accumulates to a bigger advantage, maybe across four or five operating units. And that. And this in some ways is the way Amazon operates. They do a lot more things in parallel than conventional companies, which do things in sequence. And so I think part of what you're seeing companies respond to is the change in what's possible, which which the speed of technology and, and indeed the fast flows of capital globally have made conceivable. Like you couldn't do that in the age of the Xerox memo. <laughs> you, know, you just couldn't operate that way. So I do think we're seeing a, an increase in, in perhaps in clock speed uh, within which decisions get made in companies. So um, unfortunately, uh, it's a very meaty topic. We could go on all day, but we, we should probably draw to a close. So we've had this discussion about a very important and central issue, the, the durability and nature of competitive advantage, probably the most important issue in strategy. And you know, we've, we've wallowed in opposing views. Do you have a takeaway from the conversation, Rita? Have you learned anything or has your curiosity been increased about some, some issue that you hadn't thought so much about previously? Yeah, well, I like, I like your perspective that it's really different looking at winners than losers. And uh, Roger and I have talked extensively about this idea that a world is moving towards more Pareto curves, where the winners are really, really winning and everybody else is just kind of feeding on the crumbs. And I think that's something we need to really think about. Is that, is that the kind of economy that we want, right? Is that going to give us the dynamism and the the social and community benefits we'd like to see, or is it taking us in a direction that we don't want? So I think that's a really interesting idea to think about. Right. The idea that the distribution of winning is changing mm -hmm. is, that could be a very powerful idea. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm with uh, Rita, and, and as she knows from, from us having talks about the prior book, it's one of my greatest fears for the entire economy is that a Pareto economy is inconsistent with democracy. Right. And that, that's kind of that's kind of like a big thing, because to have democracy move forward, the, the median person in the economy has got to feel like it, it's working for them. If it's not, if it's only working for the tail of the distribution, we're in trouble. I mean, I guess the thing that I probably am spurred to, to think about here is, is there more useful categorization scheme for kinds of advantage that we could come up with? Like there was just... Part of this conversation was, well, and it's spurred by you, uh, Martin, asking questions about, well, has the nature of competitive advantage changed or whatever? And it just led me to wonder, well, do we have, do we have a, a good enough categorization scheme? If you, were, if you were to say to some, and I'm sure this happens to both of you all the time, young people come to you and say, hey, I want to start a business. I'm entrepreneurially minded and I'm interested in whatever fashion or I'm interested in this. How should I think about it? Right now, probably our advice is one level more abstract than we wish it were. If we, if we could say, well, you got to think about it in this modern world, unless you can build an, an advantage of some sort, you're going to be, you're going to be screwed because it's a Pareto economy. So, so don't, you know, start the next pet food site because there'll be a hundred others or 200 other mattress in a box. The sites. Uber of whatever you want. Right. But if, <laughs> if you could instead say, 
Think about these six things, six ways you could think about getting advantage. That would be yet more actionable. I always have Chris Argerus on my shoulder saying, is, is that knowledge actionable, Roger, or is it telling them to grow taller? And so seek a competitive advantage in a world in which getting competitive advantage may be getting harder because fewer, fewer are, are getting it. So that's, that's my takeaway, Martin, is hmm, that, that could use some, some thought. Yeah, it's been a great conversation. Um, many simulated me to think about many things. I guess if I was to choose one thing, it is it takes me right back to something that Bruce Henson said about competitive strategy when he first proposed, you know, let's let's build a business based on on competitive strategy. The, the objection was, but nobody knows what that means. And he made the point, well, that's the beauty of it. We can define it. And at one level, that's a commercial proposition, right? Which is we can we can create a new reality. But at another level, I think he was saying there is never is a permanent answer to the question of competitive advantage, because whatever the answer was, somebody will arbitrage it away and invent another one. So it's the it's the pragmatic side of advantage. It's it's whatever works in the circumstances, and the circumstances of the game are always changing, even if the external circumstances are not, because the competition is constantly leveling up. And then if you layer on external change on top of that, probably we need this conversation every five years for, forever because right. yeah. it shifts by definition. It's, it's a competitive game. Yeah. Mm, well, can I add one more thing, which is the very idea of competitive advantage, I think frames the problem perhaps in a way that's not so helpful, right? It sort of posits a fixed sum of resources that you are competing with other organisms or life forms or companies or whatever. And it's, it's relatively fixed. It's not growing. And the benefit that you get is to someone else's detriment. And I don't know that that's as useful a way of thinking about what this thing is, because what we're really after is productive and value-creating engagements between companies and their customers and other stakeholders that they work with that produce decent returns for the people that have made the investments, right? And whether that's two companies doing it or 200 or 2,000 is a, a kind of a different question to me. So it's almost like a new term, customer advantage, arena advantage, you know, something that allows you to say, I've got this way of creating value for customers that is so powerful, that is so important that they will come to me rather than other solutions that might offer themselves. And I, I don't know, I don't know that that's actually competitive advantage in the classic sense in which that's meant. Yes. I mean, I, I guess you've got, you know, that's partly the idea of competition, but I, I think in, in a broader sense, I, I guess, a digital economy is necessarily more interconnected. So I guess one of the sort of unspoken assumptions of competitive advantage is that I can discreetly discriminate between his competitor A and his competitor B, and they have nothing to do with each other whatsoever. They, they compete for the same resources, whereas, of course, you can collaborate and compete at the same time and have all sorts of interdependencies that are dynamic and dependencies through third parties and shared platforms and so on. So, you know, perhaps there's some sort of complex systems, you know, version of, of, of competitive advantage that we'll need to think about in an interdependent world or something like that. But, but that's the beauty of it. We need to ask this question constantly. And the answers are always dependent, depend, depending on the means that we have, you know, the technologies and the competitive circumstances and the economic circumstances. I, I think this idea of the cost of capital increasing, if the rate of change of technological evolution doesn't change and the uncertainties created by geopolitics and so on don't change, We'll need to innovate, but just in a much more disciplined way because the cost of the innovation has, has, has gone up. So maybe that, that defines a new era of competition 
But whatever it is, I mean, that's the job of the strategist to decode what works right now in this particular situation. Yes. yes. If I can just comment on that. I, I mean, I think the idea of the world that any company uh, operates in is a complex adaptive system. I, th- I really think we've got to be teaching this to a greater extent in business schools and the like. So I, I, I buy all of that. I, I wouldn't kind of lose the competitive advantage notion. And my, my reasoning for that is the... And, and Rita gave a couple of examples of this. The easiest mistake to make in strategy is to do something that you think is cool as opposed to doing something that is unique. And, and if, if people didn't like competitive, I could go with unique advantage or, or something. But the only way that you're really going to deliver value that a customer really cares about is if you can do it uniquely. Right? You just think about the things that you care about a given provider with respect to. Right? The things that you don't care about a given provider with respect to are you, you pay as little as you can for and, and you think generically and you'll switch from one provider to the next. The ones where you say, I have to have this from this person. Those are the ones that you care about. It makes your life better, more joyous to have those things. And I've always wanted strategy to be about about having that feel of the customer. I don't care actually so much about, you know, that makes us, you know, all sorts of shareholder value, blah, 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 blah. Yes, yes, it needs to pay, that needs to pay the bills. But that, that thing where the customer says, I want yours. I, I want what you offer. And if you can figure out how to do that in a more cooperative way and in a fair way and all that, that's going to make you better, stronger, more sustainable for, for longer. But I, I don't want to lose in strategy that notion of creating that uniqueness in the, in the value. Well, we'll probably have to leave it there, Roger and Rita. Thanks so much for being good sports and, and investigating this core issue to strategy. But we'll have to do this again in five years' time and see if we were right. But um, it, it does take me back to the sort of the, the mindset of a rookie, sort of revisiting what do we really mean by this word and, and mm-hmm. how do we reinvent that word for current circumstances, which is very much the spirit of competitive strategy. So thank you both very much. It's been uh, great fun. Oh, thanks, Martin, for convening this. Yes, it's great. thanks for bringing us together. That's a, that, that, <laughs> that was a lovely conversation. Indeed.